This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Ullman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, I'm joined by Eric Adams, Borough President of Brooklyn, New York. This conversation was recorded on June 12, 2020. President Adams. Hey, Katie, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm actually really excited to be able to talk to you today. And I admire the work you do in Brooklyn. Even though I'm a Queens girl, I really admire the work that you're doing in your leadership. And I'm so excited to be able to talk to you today. Most people in New York know you. Um, You've spent your entire career in public service first as a police officer, then as a state senator before becoming a Brooklyn borough president, and now you're in the middle of your second term. Um, Can you talk us through your journey and what led you first to your career in law enforcement and then to your career um, in politics? My my journey in public life uh, started out by really by accident uh, over 40 years ago. Uh, Little little did I know that I was going to uh, take a very painful moment in my life when I was arrested and beat by police officers. Uh, That moment was going to turn into a purposeful moment. And when I became a young man, and it's interesting that today's time of the rallies is almost a back to the future moment for me because it was during these types of marches and chance that we had after Randolph Evans was shot and killed by police officers, that a group of civil rights leaders sat me down with 13 other or 12 other young men, it was 13 of us in total, and told us to go into law enforcement. And once I entered, I started an organization called 100 Blacks in Law Enforcement Who Care, and the rest was history. Uh, That's breathtaking, actually, and you're quite the role model in that way because you took an awful experience and really went into the system to change it from within. Um, And as, you know, the timely manner of everything we're seeing now with this tipping point in wanting change, demanding change, and getting change in regards to police violence against communities of color, um, how has your experience as a person of color and a police officer and now as a politician, how has that shaped you and the work that you're doing currently? It's so important because I don't care who the star athlete is. He will say that he may have had the raw talent but it was about his coach shaping those talents so they can be used to get the best performance. And that's why I say I am now. I am a, a coach that's here to help young people use their raw, energetic talent that we've all had at one time in life 
and great coaches played the game already, and they have taken the experiences of ups and downs, disappointments, missed shots, good shots, and they honed it into a teachable moment that they can transfer to someone else. And that's what I see myself now, coming from a person who was victimized by police abuse, then going into law enforcement and moving up through the ranks to sergeant, lieutenant, and then subsequently a captain. And in the process, learning the chokeholds of reform within the system, learning the places that's preventing policing to be the noble profession that it ought to be. And then moving on to the state senate to write laws and now the ball president. It is the accumulation of all of those lives and experience that allows me to be a good coach to the young people that are now marching and give them the advice when they ask for it. But allow them to do their thing. They're going to bring their own style into this move towards reform. My goal is to allow them to build on what was already let or put in place and now not stop start to build from scratch. I built on Rosa Parks. I built on Dr. King and Malcolm X and Marcus Garvey. I learned from them. I read their books. I learned their methods of moving forward. I built on Gandhi and Nelson Mandela, going and visit the jail cell that Nelson Mandela slept in for many nights. I saw the last steps that Gandhi took in India and where he sat and where he was shot. All of that knowledge allowed me to be successful in law enforcement, and now I want to hand on that knowledge to young people who are trying to be successful in reform. Now, how? So obviously, you're you're at the on the front lines of this. Um, you're whenever something happens, you're there, um, in, in your borough, and also in, when things happen in the city. Um, now, that with all of the talk and demands for police reform, defunding, and some people are demanding abolishing of police departments. Um, as a former law enforcement professional, what conversations are you having at the lo local level in your communities um, with your constituents and other electeds? And then also, on the other side of that, just in general, based on your background, how do you feel about this? And what guidance and perspective can you give to law enforcement and the people demanding change? I'm extremely excited about the energy that I'm seeing every day from young people. At the beginning of the protest here in the city, I was alarmed and concerned uh, because I was briefed by our counterterrorism bureau that there was a very dangerous element that came into the city with the desire of burning down the city. Uh, their goal was not police reform, but their goal was to bring about violence and destruction. And when I spent the first few nights out marching with the protesters and I saw police cars being burnt, I saw very aggressive and dangerous behavior. I was able to speak with a lot of the protest organizers, Anthony Beckford, the president of Black Lives Matter Brooklyn, and we were able to instruct them on what to look for 
those who were trying to be provocateurs and really hijack a righteous movement. And through that, we, we saw an immediate change in the protests or more peaceful protests. Uh, the marchers and organizers started policing themselves and moving out to dangerous element and not allowing them to violate what they were attempting to accomplish. So I'm excited for what I'm seeing. I have been disappointed on the behavior of some and I want to be clear when I say some of the police officers, a large number of officers have, show, have shown a great level of restraint, but far too many have been extremely aggressive and brutal, and brutal, and the police department needs to move more swiftly in removing them from the front line of protesters. We have been sort of slowly doing that. And I think that if we police ourselves in the March population, and the police police themselves would be able to reach to a destination that we could be safe without disgrace. That's a really good point. Do you have an opinion about what you think the steps should be for reform in our law enforcement departments and also um, the call for defunding or moving funds away from the police budget to other services that you, that have been cut in the upcoming budget? Yes, I do have a very strong opinion. Uh, the first thing I do when people use the term defund, I first ask them for their definition. Because sometimes we use terms and we agree or disagree to them without finding out exactly what an individual means when they hear it or they say it. And yeah. so my definition of defund is not to disband. I don't believe in the philosophy of disbanding police departments. I believe police departments play a vital role in stabilizing communities. Public safety is a prerequisite to prosperity, and it should be done in a humane fashion, not reactive but proactive. I do believe in taking away dollars from policing to be more proactive in public safety. When you think about it, in the last four years, our police agency has had a, an over $1 billion increase in their budget. Yeah. I think that we could use that money in a smarter way. For a perf one of the perfect examples, if you look at Rikers Island, where we have prisoners and inmates, 30 to 40% of the men and women at Rikers Island are dyslexic. If we would put that money into identifying dyslexia, giving them the proper instruction to let them know that there's nothing wrong with them. They just learn differently. If we do it in the lower grades, then they will be able to learn and be a productive citizens of society instead of believing that they can't learn. And then they go to doing petty crime, then serious crime, and they end incarcerated. So we should be proactive and not reactive. Another area, you look at foster children. Many of our foster children, they age out of foster care with no support. We totally cut them off at a very young age. It's unimaginable what I would be if I didn't have any family or loved ones and I was told, you're now on your own, Eric. You have to survive on your own. A lot of foster care children are victims of crime, childhood, prostitution, uh, illegal uh, kidnapping, sex trafficking and all, also other criminal behavior. They're more likely to be um, 
evicted from their homes, more likely to use drugs, more likely to have mental health illness. If we just spend $50 million of the police budget to give every foster child a life coach until they're 26 years old, that foster child would be more likely to graduate from college, graduate from high school, and be a productive citizen. That is the type of defunding we need to do, move away from reactive policing to proactive policing. I think Des Archbishop Desmond Tutu said it best, and I'm paraphrasing him. We spend a lifetime pulling people out of the river instead of going upstream and finding out why they fall in in the first place. We need to stop letting people fall into the river of crime. I couldn't agree, agree more. I think both of those points are incredible, and I don't see anyone how anyone could object to moving funds away from law enforcement to helping people in that way. So thank you for that. Um, I'm down to a couple more questions, and I'm going to pivot to talking about another crisis that we're all in the midst of, and that's the COVID-19 crisis, which we know has greatly impacted our city and state and region, resulting in the loss of over 20,000 lives in New York City. So in your experience uh, leading the borough of Brooklyn and being an elected official, how can we as New Yorkers work together to keep all of us safe and healthy during this continuing um, public health crisis? That's a great question, and there's so much we can do. There's only so much government could do. Although government has failed us on the federal and I believe on the state and city level, I do believe there's more that government can do to ensure that they support some of the local actions of good New Yorkers. And what we can do as New Yorkers is first take care of ourselves. I always think about when you're in a plane and the crew instructs us before takeoff that if there's a drop in cabin pressure, put the mask on yourself before you put it on your traveling companion or your child because we have to take care of ourselves first before we can take care of others. So there are things I believe we need to do independently and as individuals. We need to make sure we, of course, wash our hands as often as possible, wear face coverings if you're outside, practice social distancing as much as possible, and we need to ensure that our family members are doing the same. And if we feel any sign of illness, we should get it checked, get tested to make sure that we're not spreading uh, coronavirus to others. And then we should get tested for the mere fact of people can be asymptomatic. And then yeah. we should volunteer. We should identify those seniors who need wellness checks, bring our friends together and have a group of people who will call seniors and just check in on them, find out seniors who are shut in and be part of the food delivery services that are taking place across the city, run errands. Everyone knows the seniors on their block, write down the addresses, and then even if you just do your block, you're doing your part. So this is the moment that good New Yorkers are going to step up and ensure that they're doing the best they can. Volunteers, volunteer at a pantry. Campaign Against Hunger, they have fed 3 million people. They have given out 3 million meals. 
or join some of the pantries and assist any way that you could possibly assist. The lines are getting longer. Many people are in need. And so we need to be there for each other so we can get through this. I feel like your message is really important to give not just New Yorkers, but everyone listening ideas and also the wherewithal to know, like, we're still in the middle of this. It's not over yet. Um, my last question has to do with your embracing a plant-based diet and impetus for that. So if you could spend the last few moments talking about why you did this and some of your initiatives that you're working on right now with that. It's about health. And when you look at coronavirus, it's tied together to the same conversation because 90% of the people who died from coronavirus had pre-existing conditions. Over 90% of the people who were hospitalized had pre-existing conditions. Pre-existing conditions, that is just a fancy term for diabetes, heart disease, respiratory issues like asthma, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. And when you want to go after pre-existing conditions, one of the best proven ways to reverse many of those conditions is through a whole food plant-based diet. And so this is a great opportunity in the midst of all of this pain and uncertainty. It's an opportunity to reintroduce, reintroduce New Yorkers and Americans to the power of food. You know, those who live in New York, they know my story of having type 2 diabetes, losing my sight in my left eye, and I was losing it in my right as well. Doctor told me, ophthalmologist said I was legally blind, had to turn in my driver's license, high cholesterol, my A1C, low sugar, glucose level, was so high the doctor thought he said he don't know why I was not in a coma. I had nerve damage in my hands and feet. I was at a very bad state. It was after going to to a whole food plant based diet from Dr. Esselton in Ohio, and in three weeks I was able to reverse my vision loss, and in three months my diabetes went in remission, and the nerve damage went away as well. My 80-year-old mother, who was diabetic for 15 years, seven years on insulin, she followed me on a whole food plant-based diet. And within two months, she was off her insulin. So wow. we want to really help New Yorkers address the issue of health. We have to start with addressing the issue of healthy food and distill the myth that food is too expensive to eat healthy, that is not accessible because it is, it is and we're, we want to show people that in their local bodegas, their local stores, their local supermarkets, the different food choices they can make that can have a major impact on their health. That is a very powerful story. Um, also, through your website, now that we're still not gathering together, you also offer, there's meditation and yoga, um, so that's also part of this way of looking at us, not as just pieces, but as, you know, a full person that needs to eat healthy, think healthy, move your body. Um, I don't see other borough presidents doing this kind of work. I have some remarkable people around me, and I am just, I am in 
informational sponge, and my team bring me great ideas. I'm really blessed for having people who just, they're willing to think differently. And everything around what I understand, they complement. And my willingness to know we have to go beyond where we are to get to where we want to be. And meditation, mindfulness, eating healthy, light exercise, just some minor tweaks to how we live every day can make a major outcome on how we live the rest of our lives. Well, that's a beautiful way to end this interview. Again, I can't thank you enough for making the time to speak with me today on the Impact Report. Thank you. Real pleasure speaking with you. Take care. Learn more about Eric and some of the topics discussed in this episode by visiting brooklyn-usa.org and by following him on social media. Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report on Friday, August 28th. We'll be speaking with Carol Cohn, founder of Carol Cohn On Purpose. For the complete lineup and other news, visit us at impactreportpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. MBA in Sustainability is one of a select few graduate programs globally that fully integrates sustainability into a core business curriculum. Learn more at bard.edu slash MBA.